Right there. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I want to hit on. Once yeah. they, once you mention private investigator, you get shut down. Yep. Yeah. Because, because again, it goes back to the TV effect. Private right. investigators are a bunch of bumbling fools that gets in the way and yep. screws us up when we're trying to do our investigation. Three six one seven response to report of shots fired. The Coroner Talk podcast takes you behind the scenes with coroners, clinicians, and death investigators from around the world to provide training, news, and interviews from leading experts in the area of death investigation and scene management, bringing real stories and solid training together in one source. Now, here's your host, Darren Dake. Well, hello and welcome to this week's episode of Coroner Talk, the only podcast in iTunes dedicated to who? You, the Death investigators working death investigations to the coroner's office, medical examiner's office, police, even fire EMS and those in related roles. I appreciate each and every one of you tuning in every week to be a part of this show. Today we have a great show prepared for you. I know I say that every week, but every week I think it's a great show. Today we're going to do a little bit of a rewind. We're going to bring Dean and Karen Beers back on. They are professional legal investigators. We're going to talk about how private investigators, legal investigators, professional investigators can help with your investigation or hurt your investigation and what we should do to work with them and how they can work with us. Now, I will make a correction before we get started. During this episode, again, this was uh, talked with Karen and, and Dean a while back, And at some point in this conversation, I talk about the photographs in Missouri being part of the Sunshine Law. Now, since this was recorded, Missouri here a few months ago has changed their law a little bit and has put more restrictions on photographs with death scenes and where they involve coroner's offices and things like that. So where in the episode I talk about it can be freely given now as of 2018 it is not able to be given as freely Uh, they are restrictions on photographs which i think is a great thing but in this episode at the time i was correct i just want to make sure that now you know uh that that has changed so you know what the current information is so before we get into the show today let me tell you about today's sponsor today's sponsor is walkboard And you probably have to be wondering, what in the world do you mean by walkboard? Now, walkboard, I've had them on the show a while back. It's a very interesting piece of equipment. This is a backboard type of a thing. You think of a two-wheel handcart, a two-wheel dolly or handcart that's a backboard. It looks more like a backboard than a handcart, but it does have wheels on it. So this is a great way to be able to remove decedents from tight spaces. Even getting downstairs, you've got multi-stairs to go down, things like that. Narrow hallways, trailer, hoarder houses, things like that. You can strap a person on there up to 500 pounds. And then when you can lift this up, it gets on the wheels and it repositions the center of gravity. So it makes it easier to push and to get that decedent out of those areas. Is nothing else like it in the world. It is an amazing product. Uh, and then once you get out of the house, you can always put that onto uh, your rolled stretcher or things like that. Uh, it, it is an amazing product, something that uh, has been around only for a little while, 
but uh, it rolls easy. It goes over the ground. It goes over pile carpet. Uh, it, it can be used in many, many applications, and it's called Walkboard. Now, to find out more about that, we have it in our store, but you can go to coronertalk.com slash Walkboard. Now, Walkboard is spelled W. A-U-K board, walkboard. Now, you can also spell it with an L and make it walkboard. Either way, you'll get to the same place, cornertalk.com slash walkboard. Go there, at least look at it, see what it's all about. There's a video there showing you about removing people from stairs and things like that. It's a great product, something that uh, we recommend highly here at the Corner Talk Studios. Uh, We think that it's something that you would benefit from. There's two kinds. There's one that's used for death investigators, funeral homes, things like that, coroners. And then there's another one that is pretty well the same, but they used it to evacuate people in a mass casualty situation and to do it quickly. But go to cornertalk.com slash walkboard to find out more about that product. And I do thank them for sponsoring the show and helping us out with every sale of the walkboard that comes from our store. So now let's take just a second before we move into the conversation today and talk about what's in the news. And I think you'll find this topic pretty interesting. All right, we come again to another conversation about medical examiner versus coroners. Now, in Marionette County, Wisconsin, I'm going to give you the information that I'm going to I'm going to put my opinions in a little bit here. But here, just in the last uh, couple of days, the American County Marionette County Board of Supervisors they voted four to zero on a motion to look at the possibility of removing the coroner, elected coroner position, and moving to a medical examiner. Now, I want to read you some things that the local newspaper has put out about this, and I want to show you some comments that basically shows that this is another example of their hype, they're getting on the hype of a medical examiner better than a coroner, and yet um, they don't know what they're talking about. Now, let me just say that. If someone from Marionette County wants to talk to me and get on the show, that's fantastic. But let me read you some things here. Unless the newspaper there, that local area, is totally lying or false, I'm going to have to go by on what they're saying. This doesn't make any sense. So let's look at this. The county administrator has told county supervisors that the board must decide whether to make these changes by April 15th. Of course, that's when the nominations go out, okay, because the current coroner is soon to expire uh, his term. In January, and so if they want to do something, they need to do something this next year. Now, he has recommended that the board adopt a resolution to transition to a medical examiner at the end of the existing coroner's term and start seeking applications for a part-time medical examiner. He says, this is his quote now, I do not think the county would be at any disadvantage whatsoever to change from coroner to a medical examiner. He told the personnel committee on Thursday. In fact, there are advantages to it. That's his quote. Continuing, it, the medical examiner's position, would be under the complete control of the county. What the requirements are for who you hire, the duties they're going to do, how much you wish to pay them on an annual basis. 
You can base the pay on the experience, knowledge for whatever you're going to require for the position. There are no negative sides of this that I can think of. Now, he went on and told the Board of Supervisors that previously they pay $120,000 as budgeted for the coroner and two deputy coroners in the current budget. And that part of that amount is offset by a $40,000 annual revenue income from the coroner's office. And that the cost for a medical examiner system could be about the same. Now, once I explain to you what he wants to do, you'll understand why this doesn't really make sense. $120,000. Now, obviously, they're not going to have a medical examiner system where they have a pathologist, all right, because they're not going to hire a forensic pathologist for $120,000 a year, let alone the rest of the budget. But he thinks he can do it just fine and hire uh, and have all the money within the same $120,000 budget. Now, keep in mind, he's wanting to hire a part-time medical examiner, which I don't even understand what that is necessarily. Okay, the current coroner is paid about 30000 and is treated as a part-time employee. The county administrator said he is unsure how much a medical examiner would have to be paid but that a classification study that was done for other county employees could be done and then they could determine what that would be and be confident a part-time medical examiner could be hired. Okay, he has no idea what he might have to pay a medical examiner, but he thinks somewhere around $30,000 would be okay. Now he's talking about a part-time. If you can't, if you can find a part-time coroner, you should be able to hire a part-time medical examiner, he said. You'll probably have applicants because people don't necessarily want to throw their hat in the ring, but they are more willing to give you an application. You know, he goes on to say if they're unsuccessful in finding a part-time medical examiner, you could look at what other duties could be placed in that position to make it full-time. I hope we don't ever have to go down that road. Hopefully we can find a qualified part-time medical examiner. Okay, let me give my opinion. If they can't find a medical examiner to work in a part-time position, then what other duties can they give to be able to make it full-time? If they've got the money to pay a medical examiner, then why can't they pay it to the coroner? Right now, they're, they're the coroner, and this, the, the, the article goes on to say that they have no problem with the coroner. They're not mad at the coroner. He's probably retiring at the end of his term. They're, they're, not, they're not necessarily trying to get rid of him, but they don't they haven't paid him anymore but somehow they think they can afford to have a part-time or pay somebody else you know he says he thinks the trend more and more counties are gradually switching to medical examiner one of the reasons i support this in the long run i think counties will be better served with a medical examiner with a medical examiner you can set requirements for it now listen to this you can set requirements for it uh, this other person last name keller stressed that a medical examiner could be dismissed by the county and that the only and only the governor could remove coroner during their term. Again, we here's a here's where you find the underlying problem. The board of supervisors in the county wants to control the investigation. The reason why now I'm putting those are my words, not theirs. But the reason why uh, you want a coroner is they're independent of the police and the county and all that. They are elected. Now you want them to have more training. That's fine. You want to pay more money. That's fine. But here they want to be able to dismiss him if he doesn't do what they want. Okay. Uh, this other guy said at the last county board meeting that he recommended that the opinions of the local funeral directors be sought about the medical examiner's position. I don't give a flip about local funeral homes. 
A funeral home director should not be sought in this decision. It makes them no difference whatsoever. Okay, I, I start. I'm starting to see stuff suspicious here. I'm not liking what I'm reading here. Why do you want to go to a medical examiner uh, scenario where you can hire and fire him at your will, and you're going to be seeking the opinions of funeral directors again? There's my point. This isn't looking good. Another comment goes on here. There should be no difference to them being the funeral directors of whether a medical examiner or coroner because the positions are the same. The duties are the same as long as they do it in-house and don't change the fees. Again, we're talking about fees, paid to funeral homes for removals, things like this. But even they even admit that the duties are the same for a medical examiner or coroner but they're willing to pay a medical examiner more money. Now, in this article, and I'll, I'll kind of make this short here, they start talking about who could be a medical examiner, and they do talk about doctors, but they also talk about nurses and police officers and things like that, which is the same people that can also run for coroner. They're not even necessarily looking to hire a pathologist. And then the county administrator did go on to reiterate that the only difference between the two positions is that the coroner is elected and the medical examiner is appointed. The difference is that if someone runs for coroner and they turn out to be a dud, this is his quote, you can't do anything but petition the governor. If you have a medical examiner and these funeral directors have problems with the medical examiner, they now have a way to get results. Again, folks, I don't give a flip about the funeral home directors. Why does this county? Okay, let me sum it up in this. They want to move from a coroner, elected coroner position to a medical examiner because they think it sounds better and they can control it. If they hire a medical examiner, number one, they want to hire a part-time medical examiner. They want to call him a medical examiner because they've hired him not elected him, but they're not going to be a forensic pathologist. They're still going to have to do autopsy somewhere else. They're still going to have to have all the, uh, the other stuff done at a medical examiner's office, a pathologist's office for autopsies and things. Again, it's the same thing. What this, what this county board wants is someone they can control. And now you're going to have situations where maybe they start controlling the investigations, like the problem going on in California with the coroner-sheriff combination when the sheriff can control what the pathologist says. I don't like it. I don't think it's good. Elected coroners are good things to have. You want them more trained? Fantastic. Give them more training, pay them more money, attract more qualified people. Get some restrictions in place for the people that can run for elections like they have done for the sheriffs around the years. Fantastic. But going to a medical examiner because it's a nice name and you can control who you hire and fire absolutely is not the right answer for America. Okay, last thing about training topics and we'll move on to our featured conversation. Remember, as this comes out, it is the middle of March, the medical examiner level one course, or the medical legal death investigator level one course has started. The day this comes out actually is the first day for the uh, March session. Now, the online academy starts April 14th. Now, if you want to be part of the certified criminal investigator, which covers all kinds of crime investigation, like a detective type stuff, that's April 16th. And then, of course, we also have buried body, uh, surface remains, entomology courses, all these practicals, all this stuff coming up this year. All of our training information, all of the opportunities, both online and classroom, can be found at cornertalk.com slash training. And remember, if you want to have an in-service class, you just want to have the uh, bring me in, you can bring me in virtually. I can come in and teach a class. 
four, five, six, seven hours, or even two hours to a small meeting training at your office virtually. You don't have to fly there, but I can teach the same lesson and you can get the same training virtually as you can bringing somebody in. It only works for up to a few hours, can't work, you know, for two or three days, but it's something that can certainly help you. So without any further delay, let me get into today's featured conversation. Adjust your earbuds, turn up those speakers, and hang on. It's now time for this week's featured conversation. Now, let me introduce today's guest. Dean is one of less than 80 board-certified legal investigators internationally. He's the only one in Northern Colorado. With his wife, Karen, he is also a certified criminal defense investigator. They're one of three husband and wife teams in, in the nation. And Dean and Karen also are certified medical legal death investigators. Now, he has extensive background in medical legal forensics and factual investigations with law enforcement education, experience, and relationships. Now, he has testified in, as an expert in, in forensic investigations, pattern injury analysis, and private investigations. And he currently consults nationwide in criminal defense, homicide, and civil death investigations. Uh, now, before you, before you I say any more, he's not the enemy here, folks. This guy is here to help us, and we're going to explain how what he does, what him and his wife does, will help us in our investigations. Now, he's a death investigator, been involved in investigations of all manners in death, since 2003 through 2008, he investigated more than 150 scenes, assisted with approximately 400 autopsies, and investigated over 600 non-autopsy cases. The point is, he's probably been on more death scenes than many of us listening here today. So he comes at this with the experience and the education that he needs to investigate these. Now, Karen, in her own right, earned a bachelor's degree in social work from the Colorado State University, and with her husband, Dean, is also a certified criminal death investigator so together they work these cases and so they're joining us today dean welcome to the show hey thank you darren i appreciate it We're i'm glad to be here and talk with you and your listeners uh, about uh, what we do to help families and law enforcement out yeah this is a this is a very unique uh situation um i know sometimes um investigators police coroners uh they don't necessarily like private uh, investigators to come to come into their scenes or start investigating. And we talked pre-show about how sometimes they, us type A personalities don't like to be questioned. And it's really not about questioning them, is it? You're actually trying to get answers just as they are. Exactly. That's true. My wife and I, we get um, our cases, like you mentioned, we consult expert, whether it be in civil or criminal cases. We also primarily, uh, as my wife will tell a lot of people, we're involved greatly with families because families you know, death is uh, us working in it, you know, with you and our listeners, Darren, death is a, a, it's a very traumatic event for families and friends in which they're seeking some answers and closure. And often, as you mentioned, type A personalities have a difficult time relating to how to begin that road to closure and answers for families. And it's usually cut and dry. Most of our cases, nine out of 10, easily the ones we get, and we get some difficult ones are just exactly what what they came to us as it's sometimes just a misunderstanding by family members and stuff. But then on the other hand, sometimes we're not able to help those family the way we'd like to, because we find ourselves at a roadblock because uh, some of the official agencies don't like us quote meddling in their affairs and things like that. And we understand the integrity of evidence, uh, the integrity of records and, 
and uh, how things can be easily misinterpreted in the days of uh, CSI television now. So we're very careful about that, very conscientious about what goes on. And our goal is to actually not only provide uh, answers and closure to families down that road or begin it, but it's also to help them actually have a better conversation with those official agencies and explain to them maybe the best route to go about asking for information or sitting down. Because unfortunately, uh, I don't want to pick on forensic pathologists, but they're very strong type A's. Some of them don't have that uh, clinical patient skills um, that you see with your family doctor. Um, And some of us were not trained in how to work with uh, families and stuff. Now, at the agency my wife and I trained and worked at, there was a lot of emphasis put on making sure that families were number one, but we were also the only investigators assigned to that case from beginning to end. So because it was important that the family not be switched from investigator to investigator just because a shift ended. Uh, so I hope that helps you and our listeners understand that we're, we're here to kind of bring things together, not just answers, but people. Right. I agree to that. And, and you know, one thing, so, you know, we, we have listeners all over the world. And so some of them have probably had some experience with private investigators. So what I want to do for just a moment is let's kind of start from what it is you do for a family. You you can probably just decide on a, without any names or anything, but uh, maybe a case comes to mind above where you helped a family or what kind of things do you do for the family? And then maybe let's talk about, is there a time that you've actually been able to assist law enforcement um, on the positive side as well? Because, Here's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid that in most cases, uh, bringing in private investigators seems like I talked about a while ago. Seems like the negative. And I'm, what I'm wanting to do here through through this today's conversation is to show that you're not the bad guy. You actually are on the same team as we are. Now, I've been in law enforcement for many many years, and obviously, you're an investigator for the defense, which obviously puts you at the opposition to us okay because we're prosecuting we're arresting we're charging you're now trying to gather evidence for in favor of the accused which puts you in opposition in reality we should all look at this is at the end of the day the only thing that really matters is the actual truth and i think your involvement can be just as as useful as law enforcement involvement so think about a case. Let's talk about something of how you guys have done and to help so people get a better understanding of what it is you do because I think a lot of times, like in anything, they don't like it because they don't understand it. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does. And thanks. Let me start with that last part, actually. When we're retained by the defense and we're often also retained by civil uh, plaintiff, uh, whereas in we work for the party that's been aggrieved or has a claim, but let's talk about that criminal our clients are the defense attorney typically, and we've been asked by prosecution to help, but uh, from time, they, they have their, their people. They have law enforcement. They have the labs. They have the forensic pathologists. On the private side of things, they just don't. Uh, so they do turn to people like us to help out. And we have conversations both before, during, and after these cases proceed, and those conversations are very careful for them to understand that we may not help you. So let me give you a quick example of how we, we didn't help. Uh, we had a case in a, uh, a, a big city. Uh, it was a, a brutal homicide. And uh, we, the, the, we don't ask for any information other than the records and a very brief synopsis from our clients. So we get this, we get this synopsis. We agree to review it, which leads us to whether we'll accept the case or not. So we, can, we had that case. We were able to see what happened. And um, like I said, it was a female that was uh, brutally stabbed obviously fatally stabbed, drug in and outside of her condo. 
the door had been deadbolt locked, oh, the only door, the front door of the condo, with two deadbolt locks that both take a key to unlock from the inside. The key was not in the locks when law enforcement had to kick the door in. So, and they found a person who was later charged and convicted upstairs having showered. He had one mark on his leg that was not from the wrestling on the ground he had with law enforcement of blood. He had blood from the, from that, but he had one particular mark that wasn't. We explained to the attorney the, 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 the limitations they had as far as the defense. We had no idea what their strategy was because we don't care. Uh, we never heard from him again. They thanked us for our time and understood what we did was we shared with them the problems they had. Other cases, for example, that uh, my wife Karen here will kind of explain. We had one that was a case where a person killed a person back in the 50s. He absconded from his parole. He was captured again in, in mid-2000s, identified, captured, and rearrested. And then in the process, it was believed that he may have been involved in another series of murders and may have been a serial killer. So we were asked to look at least one of these, and one of the early ones, and make a determination as to what happened. It was ruled a suicide by ligature with a belt. Um, there was no records that we could get. Law enforcement was more than willing to share the records. They just didn't have them. They got burned in a fire at the ME's office, and, and then they had a very poor uh, property evidence property room in which was made national news, actually. Uh, and the, the, the sergeant for the property room you know, offered anything he could find us. We had limited reports. We were pretty much inconclusive. Uh, my wife talked with the medical legal investigator at the time, not anymore, got no really new additional information. And then one day I got pictures in the mail. Uh, and photographs are very important to all of us. I got photographs in the mail. I looked at them. Uh, they had some information, but nothing that was particularly jumping out at me. And again, this was a person that was being looked at and being considered for possibly uh, committing homicides. This involved a, a, an in-law of his. Um, and so my wife, though, was looking at the photographs, and she noticed a couple key things. Well, one of the things that they had... Oh, by the way, this is my oh, wife, Karen. Hello. <laughs> Sorry. But you can't um, see her. One of the things that the problem was, there was all kinds of rumors. Like, there's a lot of rumors in, a lot, in most of these cases. But one of them in particular was the that the belt was cut. But in one of the photographs, although they weren't really crisp, you know, digital photographs, you could see where the belt was not cut. And, and also the, the end of the belt, you could see where it had been used and the crimping and the tapering of the belt. So that eliminated that little rumor there that that was. Yeah, that, that rumor was that, the, that, that this person and his daughter, stepdaughter, had killed her husband and um, and then later went and cut cut him down and cleaned up the rope and positioned him and staged it. We've seen those. But yeah, as my wife noted, uh, she saw these photographs and pointed it out to us to me. So we were able to to show the family and to show this other unrelated family that this person didn't, was not responsible for a homicide. It was in fact a suicide, um, and that took care of that. They they realized that they were on the wrong path. The importance of that is 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 that somebody, although he was guilty of one homicide, was being looked at for another, and we were able to help not only answer family questions. But other investigators and law enforcement, you know, were adamant that that this was just a suicide. So we did that, too. Um, so that's one example um, of, of that on the end run. But then about how we help families out there. And that was your first question. I don't know. Why did you explain how it is we help families out? Well, most most of the time, families just don't un they just don't understand the process of what's going on. And um, 
when that's a problem, they send us all the information and we go through it step by step to help them help answer the questions. If And a lot of times it's just a matter of showing that the proper protocol was followed or if there was some slack. And then that helps with their questions. And sometimes if they're slack, as you know, Derek, I mean, come on, you're on scene as a first responder. You, you don't have the planning strategy that we can have from the outside. We have that advantage. Yeah. We have a hindsight, hindsight is always 2020. Well, it is, you know, and it is on our cases that review afterwards, too. Sometimes we'll go back and look at it and, and we do it separately. And then one of us will remind the other about a few things, maybe from other cases, that that type of hindsight. But we'll look at these cases independently, and we don't have we have that advantage of planning and strategy, whereas first responders don't. And we'll explain it. You know, the family will go, "Well, why didn't they collect fingerprints? They didn't dust anywhere. They didn't collect DNA from from underneath the spare tire of the car that was parked in the garage." And we explain to them why that may not be relevant. We also explain that to attorneys, by the way. If there is a flaw in protocol, perhaps it didn't change anything of an evidentiary conclusion. Because like you said, our purpose is the truth. And as Voltaire said, to the living we owe respect and to the dead we owe the, only the truth. And that's our goal. And, and if there's a little slack, you know, we're all human. We make those mistakes. If there's big slack, like they report, you know, in the OJ case was supposedly a lot of big slack. Uh, that may turn the witnesses, the jury, and the investigation another direction. But at other times, it doesn't sway anybody whatsoever. They understand their slack. Um, and then there's the misunderstanding that families have. Just from that CSI effect, um, you know, well, uh, we had one case, uh, actually, ligature hanging. We seem to get a lot of those in stabbings, but the mother wanted to, and this was before the big NSA news hit a couple years ago, but the mother wanted us to get a hold of the government to get the images from the satellite that would show her daughter having been killed uh, by, by an acquaintance. And she misunderstood a lot of things. She misunderstood lividity for bruising. She misunderstood particular hemorrhaging for uh, other causes of injuries. And we tried and tried to explain all this, and it just was was honestly of no use to explain anything. And we found out from one of our friend from the forensic pathologist she contacted, we were acquainted with, he was the fourth or fifth one she had contacted. And we were, we found out from law enforcement, who, by the way, welcomed us being involved, hoping that somebody would help her. Uh, what well, we were like easily the third or fourth independent agency all reaching the same conclusions. Um, but once you get to that point, there's no, you're not going to help somebody it's, that it's difficult. keeps going difficult. and going looking. So for I hope answers. that helps explain. Uh, yeah. Isn't it, I, isn't I it amazing? Isn't it amazing though, how uh, there are so many cases where families do not want to accept suicide as being suicide. That, that happens in a lot of cases. And so I see how you guys could get brought into that. You know, even on a local level here, we have issues where, uh, we go to rule something suicide, and the families absolutely don't agree with that uh, for whatever reason. And I think some of it is because of family stigma, and some of it is, well, you know, he just wouldn't do that or, or whatever. And, of course, maybe they did have a problem with a neighbor or some enemy somewhere type thing. And, of course, they want to they wanna blame. So, so you're, you know, you had actually mentioned that in your website, you talk about getting um, answers of suicide for families. So you, you may do a lot of those type of things. Do you do a lot of suicide investigations? On our family side. Yeah, that's, that's one of our main things that we do. But the, one of the big issues is um, family, they have so many questions, but it, you know, when they're in denial or, 
acceptance, people think there's a set rule for suicide or rules, set of rules, like, you know, they leave a note or they wouldn't do it or they just bought a new car or, you know, whatever. But nobody can get inside that person's head and know exactly what they're going through. Right. So what are some of the things that you guys do? Take me through a hypothetical case of of just this thing. A family says it's not suicide. Law enforcement seems to believe that it is. And the families want you to look into it. What process, what procedures, how would you go about this? I think, I think one good one is, uh, the case of that, of, of the, uh, police officer in Florida. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was, that was a good one. There was one we were, we were asked to be involved in a case by a colleague. Um, and it was a law enforcement officer that was reported to have shot himself and the his agency investigated the case, which often is not a good idea, and that's one of the first things that gives families big concern. Um, our jurisdiction has a cross-investigation. A neighboring jurisdiction doesn't, and it's been in the news for having a, a, a similar problem. So we were given uh, all the photographs and all the reports. Florida, um, okay, we were given all the law enforcement photographs. We were not given any autopsy or ME investigator photographs because – Florida has the Dale Earnhardt law, which says that photographs can only be released by subpoena court order to next of kin. In this particular case, the next of kin being the wife was who the, the uh, decedent's family felt might have been responsible for his death. So we did get the scene photographs and there were uh, some things that were very obvious to suicide and some things that, that leave questions such as how he was holding the handgun. And it took took a while for us to figure out how he was actually holding it based on blood spatter. Um, but as far as the details of the investigation, uh, we were asked by one of our colleagues, but, um, and you did actually most of the review work on that one and found quite a few interesting things. Yeah, but this, this case in particular, the, um, the investigating officer probably did one of the most thorough jobs we have seen. They really did an excellent job. But um, it was the... The blood spatter, that was the issue, and because every, every way, we have a play gun that, <laughs> that actually we use to try to determine which way it could have been held, because what people think is a normal way to hold it, it couldn't have been done, mm-hmm. but we were able to figure it out. Was. And, and it was actually the only, I mean, in the end, step by step, um, like, like, like Karen said, that detective, uh, she did a very excellent job. Every moment the family or a witness or anybody else had a question, a, a lead, mm-hmm. a piece of evidence or another witness, she immediately was on that. And she followed through with everything. And thorough reports, um, good photographs of the scene, but we didn't have anything else. Um, the the Emmy investigation was fine, except one of the problems we had with the Emmy investigation, again, this is a protocol thing, was it was a, this was in the mid AM they called the ME's office and, and spoke to the on-call investigator and said, we have uh, a law enforcement officer, gunshot wound to the head. We're investigating it. Uh, could be suicide, could be homicide. And that re- that on-call investigator said, well, it doesn't sound like there's a reason for me to respond. For most jurisdictions, that's a huge protocol violation. And for others, it's acceptable. So, that, But in the end, it didn't change anything. That evidence was there. We were able to, to demonstrate to, to our contact and, and then to the family how he held the handgun. And they were still disappointed, but I think they were satisfied in the end that they had done everything. And we explained to them how thorough that was. 
And then again, we had another one that's uh, fairly noteworthy, another law enforcement officer case, another reported suicide. And this one made huge news. Uh, but actually, as soon as you started reviewing the evidence, you had to begin questioning how anybody in their right mind with experience could have determined this to be a suicide. Um, and you're welcome to look up that uh, on our on our website and in the news. It, uh, it, there's no confidentiality anymore, but it's Sean Drenth um, case, D-R-E-N-T-H. It's a very interesting case. In the end, ultimately, we were again hired by a colleague investigator just to look at certain components. He had his ballistic experts and things like that. Again, it was a law enforcement agency investigating their own case. There were a lot of questions about events surrounding the case that we weren't privy to that gave rise in the media to concerns. And then ultimately, we were able to determine uh, that, in our opinion, it was not a suicide. It was not a self-inflicted gunshot wound. It was a shotgun. Uh, and that the alternative was homicide. The widow, uh, not in any interest for herself particularly, but for their children, continued this. The ME's office would not sit down with them. They would not uh, explain the cases. Uh, they ran into a lot of roadblocks. They had to file a lawsuit in order to accomplish anything and get records. Um, ultimately, the Civil Commission awarded her full benefits, or more accurately, her minor children full benefits, determining that on their own that it was less likely a suicide, more likely a homicide, and therefore a work-related death, and then she was awarded that. So we have two example cases of law enforcement investigating themselves, some protocol violations, but yet the end result being you know, appropriate for what they found on one hand and we found differently on another. And we were just there to help the family out. Well, now you mentioned something about the Dale Earnhardt law. Now, Missouri has something called Missouri Sunshine Law. Are you familiar with that? That's public records that no, are not. that you can get public records and uh, of a case that has been closed where Florida's are a little tighter on on photographs. In Missouri Sunshine Law, we have very little ways to get around releasing some information unless it's an active case then we can we can keep it if it's considered a closed case just about anybody can ask for photographs and we have to produce them um we can make them sign waivers and things like that but but the, you deal around the country so what kind of restrictions do you face in trying to get records from public agencies like missouri if you request we have to honor what about some other areas? How do you get records when they when the agency says no? What does the law say? How do you deal with those? Uh, let's start with locally, Colorado. Uh, the The law is pretty clear to us in what it says. However, we have found that jurisdiction to jurisdiction, they, how they interpret that all the way up to the district attorney uh, and even our state attorney general differs. Um, so what should be, we'll, we'll talk about inactive cases, what should be open records and, re and disclosing photographs and things without restrictions turns out to be under another act, a Criminal Records Act. Some interpret it as being restrictive and others interpret it as not applying. Uh, so we run into some roadblocks locally. Wyoming, which we also work out of, um, has a very restrictive Public Records Act on everything. Um, we can't even go to law enforcement agencies and ask for a background check unless we know a specific date and incident that we want to report for. There's uh, some states up north that I, I don't want to mix them up, but between Minnesota and North Dakota, one of them you can get photographs but no report, and the other one you can get a report but no photographs, and we've had cases in both of those. Um, so they do vary quite a bit now. Um, 
because we've been legal investigators, I've been since 87, my wife since 96, and we deal with public records a lot. What one, one agency may have certain records that they can release, whereas another agency might have similar but can't. So we try to find what agency is able to release records to us. And then the other thing we try, and it's just the good old boy network. We're professionals. We've been in the we've been in the in the field with you guys. Uh, you know, we're not going to disrespect the family. We're not going to disrespect the work you do. You know, if you're willing to share photographs with us or a report that would be legal, but you know, you're cautious about, you know, let's do that. Um, if they're willing to talk on the phone, if we have to resort to only that, we can. Of course, we don't get medical records unless the family gives them to us and we need them and we send those to our forensic pathologist. But as far as criminal justice records, photographs, reports, things like that, um, if we run into a roadblock, if the family's able to help and it's not a family that's being suspected, we get their help. Uh, sometimes we'll have a local private investigator who often we work with anyhow uh, that might have the ability, the lawful ability, we only do things lawfully, the lawful ability to get those records because sometimes we just have a misunderstanding um, here, you know, we just do the best we can. And oftentimes, most often, except for some cases, when we let when we let them know that, hey, look, we're only from one professional to another. We're not trying to make you look bad. We're just trying to help this family out. Um, you know, sometimes they'll, they'll come on board and other times that type A personality say, no, you, you guys are just trying to make me look bad. And, you know, we can't have that right now. But I don't. I got to be honest with you. I don't think we've ever ha made another agency look bad. No. And not even in the defense side, uh, where we may have hammered them for their protocols and even their conclusions were in error. We, we're, you know, we're still very respectful. We don't hammer. I mean, and they can do the same with us. And I've been on the stand testifying where they've come at me, you know, left and right, and and that's just the nature of the business. It's an adversarial process. But our goal is only to find the facts that help us determine if we can what the truth is. And, and most often, the, the case is almost exactly as we're given it. The family's just not either comprehending and understanding because it can be very technical or they're in a state of denial. And then other times they have a very legitimate claim. And maybe we can talk about another one of those cases in a little bit. Yeah. Now, do you actually go out to scenes or do you do most of your work through uh, records and, and things like that? Or do you actually go to scenes when you can? That's a very good question. I'm glad you asked that because I, I've also authored a textbook and we've also authored a course online that, that very explicitly states your best first thing to do after you've prepared for the case and reviewed everything is be at the scene. However, because we get a lot of cases nationally, we count on a, a, a somebody else that we explicitly give instructions to to maybe help us with the scene or video it. Uh, but oftentimes it's an after the fact and the scene may not be available. Um, for example, I went down to the state line to look at photographs because they wouldn't disclose, and the building I wanted to see was tore down. Uh, thankfully, that coroner's office did such an excellent job of their photograph and documentation that I didn't really feel I needed to see the scene anymore um, in that particular case. However, there's others they do. Whenever we're involved in a criminal defense case, before we reach a conclusion and before we testify, we it's still up to the attorney but we tell them how important it is for us to be at the scene uh, and take a look at that before we reach any conclusions because something at the scene could change our mind. I'll give just one historical example real quick. Uh, several years ago, I was able to go to uh, Dallas to the Book Depository Building and see the Assassin's Nest where um, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald was said to have shot John F. Kennedy. 
uh, in pa- you know passing through the motorcade. And then a, a few years later, my I took my wife there. When I went, I had the advantage of a friend that was a Secret Service agent at the time explain everything to me. He was on the first team that relieved over to the second team in Dallas. When they got word of the assassination, they were all reactivated. They were on their way to Hyannisport for Thanksgiving, but they were reactivated. And he said he didn't leave Dallas until February, just interviewing people. But anyhow, we had the advantage of him through one of my associations go around and show us everything. So I showed my wife everything. And my point to that is, is from the scene from the from the assassin's uh, roost and nest, we could see down and see that that shot would not have been near as difficult as you might be led to believe in various books and movies. Uh, we also had a chance to go to Martin Luther King Jr. assassination site in Memphis, and we saw the same thing. Now, that's just a perspective. Now, once you get into measurements and skills and things like that, things may differ. But just as a perspective, when you see it, you know, writing and photographs are still two-dimensional. Even a video is a little better. But until you see it, you're not exactly sure if your eyes are uh, telling you, you know, exactly what you should be seeing. Yeah, that's very true. That's why a lot of times there's scenes recreated in courtrooms. I know I've had situations where we've, we've actually seized parts of walls and beds and things to where for evidence to where if we needed to, we could recreate those. And there's been a time or two we have recreated because a jury, just like you said, the jury don't see the picture unless they can see the real thing. So um, a lot of times if we can reconstruct the best we can, they get a they get a better idea. And, you know, there's a lot of things out there with um, computer re- re-imaging and things that does help. But seeing it in person the best possible way gives you that that three that three dimensional view. Um, now, you had mentioned a textbook and training. And I think on your website, you even also mentioned that you guys, your company also trains other investigators around the country. Right. Other private investigators. Are you also a training site? Uh, we're not a training site. We, we do go around to for different associations. Uh, we're going to uh, Wyoming later this week uh, to give some training. And of course, you know, you being in, in the business, as they say, we can't train people to be up to speed on everything we need. We give them the basics to understand the differences between real world and, and, and uh, fiction. We give them uh, things to look for, like in photographs and evidence and injuries and and, and, and we basically are trying to teach them how to ask the right questions and get the right information and evidence for their cases. Whether And we do a lot with civil investigators for plaintiffs, those that have been uh, victimed by uh, wrongful death or something like that. Um, so we don't offer a training site, but we well, do offer our, our distance learning. Yeah, I was going to say, we have the course, though. Yeah. Yeah, that's different. Um, our distance learning that we did a few years ago. Uh, that's available for uh, any any investigator and any layperson, even though it's too complicated for a layperson. Uh, it's it's comprehensive, but it's by all means not a not a teach all at all. Uh, but it, we ask our investigators that are going to be referring to us or doing, um, you know, getting families uh, contact and then referring to us to at least t- go through that course so that they can understand what we're going to be doing. And then on a similar note, we did a book. Um, the Survivor's Guide to Understanding Death Investigations. And if you could tell a little bit about that. That was for families and laypersons to understand what we're talking about today. That's what it is. It's just for basically for families and to help them with the process. And But it, it, just, it just touches on the iceberg. I mean, th- there's just so much, as you know, to death investigation. But it does break it down to where they hopefully can understand the proper questions to ask and where to go to ask these questions. It won't teach them 
No, they're they're not going to be able to do an investigation themselves. It just helps them understand, you know, that protocol thing. If there's an error in the protocol, don't worry. It still may be okay. Or yes, you have a serious problem. But we also teach them how to communicate with law enforcement, not, you know, how to reach out to them and things, because it's so important. Um, At the beginning, speaking of law enforcement, you mentioned chief supply. I just want to tell the listeners that when when I was assigned to one of our neighboring counties, uh, one of our primary places we got our supplies from was chief supply. So a very good company, but I wanted to throw that out there in your support of your listeners uh, to do that. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, they are a good they are a good company, and they treat us very well. So, uh, you, you mentioned a CSI effect, and and I have discussed about this on other on other shows. This whole idea of a CSI effect has really changed the way people perceive law enforcement. Even though everybody knows television is just television, for some reason they totally forget it when it comes to their family member's death. Yeah, they do. Or when they're sitting, unfortunately, on a jury. Um, See, and that's dangerous. It's the juries that are causing the it, big problem, too. Uh, it could be. You could have a, a, a just a, a proper conviction. Um, you know, there, the, uh, well, that, that's, an, that's going to be an active case. But there are cases that we've heard where juries have said, well, you know, if only they would have had this kind of evidence, you know, we would have found them guilty or then they'll, or they'll go the other way. You know, they find this evidence that just, and they're not supposed to deliberate in the jury room in reinterpreting the evidence, but we have heard about them doing that and they'll go back and they'll get, you know, like, well, you, you know, first responder in the field, put this evidence together. It gets put together, packaged, sent to the DA, the DA presents it to the jury at trial. The defense does their job. And then somewhere along the way, they start piecing the, well, you know, because of this, A, then B must have happened. And because of B, then Z must have happened. And they just jump, you know, right to the end. And we're not understanding how that happened. But they're still not explaining or these people are not understanding circumstantial evidence. They want to see somebody actually getting kidnapped or, or hanging and putting them in the trunk of a car. They want to actually see well, yeah, like, this happening. And, like, and it's not going to happen. They it's, it's frustrating that, that that poor mother that just would not accept her child hanging herself. And I understand from that perspective, not personally, it just isn't going to happen. I mean, you know, I mean, London, England has a camera at literally about every 12, 15 feet in some places where well, everything's on video in London, England, but not here, um, thankfully. But yeah, as far but but as far as the CSI effect, probably the biggest thing we see is the mixture of investigation and science uh, where people are expecting the investigators to also be scientists and we're not we're not scientists um, we apply science and things like that to what we find but we're not we don't for example we're not testing DNA we don't interpret DNA but we do tell where it should be what should have been collected how it may have been and what that may help or hinder with and why it may not help uh, you know, uh, juries and families, both sort. I mean, a family is nothing but a jury. They're just trying to make a decision based on facts and possibly misinformation. I think Karen alluded earlier that um, witness statements and things that are being said, once a person starts talking, you know, it's that whole thing that that old childhood game, it changes towards the end. And then who do you believe? But circumstances are exactly what they are. I mean, that's actually the primary evidence um, circumstantial evidence, and then we need physical evidence to support that. And we just really need to somehow break that barrier 
I've seen prosecutors and defense attorneys do an excellent job of trying to break that barrier. But for some reason, when the jury gets back in the jury room or the family goes back in their living room and sits down and talks, that barrier comes right back up again. Well, it's it's almost like they, they feel like they are, well, there's so much reality TV anymore, too. It's almost like they... They feel they're on a show themselves. Okay, we're going to find the answer. We're going to figure this out because I've watched CSI and I know. And that's a big problem. Well, and you know, the, the something my wife has pointed out is uh, she's been around the death investigation in the Sheriff's Department world for a long time as well. And, you know, she said, I have never seen any of our investigators show up in, in stilettos and, <laughs> and evening yeah. gowns. Yeah. You know, it just don't happen. So, so number one, that's all not real. And then I like what you pointed out is that the um, investigators are not scientists. On the CSI effect, um, you know, in Missouri, our criminologists, our lab people, they don't leave the lab. See, so so we send evidence yeah. to them. The CSI, they're all outside the lab in the scene. And then, and then, of course, the third thing, of course, is everything can be solved in an hour. Um, <laughs> you know, j- just like I've got a case. I talked to a, a lady yesterday, and she was she's understanding, but she was upset because uh, we're still waiting on toxicology on a case. And I'm told her it's six to eight weeks on a toxicology. I just cannot help any. I can't help it. That's the way it is. Well, she didn't understand, and she didn't mention CSI, but it, I could almost hear it come in her mind. Yeah. Like, well, it don't it that shouldn't that's just a test that shouldn't take very no it doesn't take very long once they get to your sample, but it takes a long time before they get to your sample. Yeah, and mm-hmm. and that's what they don't really understand because of the you know, state labs and different ones. We use private labs sometimes, but uh, the thing is that's also something that um, your your job as a private investigator is certainly to help families understand what the CSI effect is having on them and the case where it's just not, it's just not real. Now, how I've, the last couple of shows I've talked about this auto auto erotic death. Have you guys investigated very many of those? Because that seems to be the biggest suicide. Well, accidental death exactly. yeah. that, that families question um, because they, they don't want it to have happened. But do you guys get called in on many of those or not? You know, oddly enough, we haven't had, uh, privately, we haven't had one that I can think of. We had, well, actually, I, a long time ago, one of my very first ones was, uh, bef- um, but, and, and that one was in another state, and it was before I was involved in death investigation specifically. Uh, so I often forget about it. But the family was concerned because it was ruled a suicide. It was a lay corner, and all I mean is not a forensic pathologist corner. And the family said he wouldn't have killed himself. So I called the coroner and I, you know, uh, asked him, and he was very open with everything. He said, I'll send you the photographs and whatever you need. And, but when he explained it to me, I'm, I was going, this isn't a suicide. He was describing a maintenance guy had found, found this, found the decedent. And the decedent was in a uh, uh, questionable position when he was found with lots of adult material around him. So those become big signs, as you and I know, and, and my yeah. wife, you know, these are big signs of autoerotic cases. With no clothes. At, yeah, he had no clothes. Um, he did have some female clothes in the closet, things like that. So I talked to Corn. I said, I got to be honest with you. I don't think this is a suicide from what we're seeing and, and stuff. And he said, well, of course it is. He, you know, he was found, hang, hanged himself. I said, yeah, but there were other things going on. And so I had our, uh, you know, I sent him some information about that. And then I told the family, well, that made them more upset 
they did not want that. They, mm-hmm. they almost would rather have been suicide at this point. Well, unfortunately, the death certificate for them was changed because the coroner under, you know, then understood the, the issue. Um, but they were very unhappy that it was changed. Now, we do have a case that we're closing in which we were looking at the material, um, but without photographs. So I had to go look at them. But we were wondering if maybe it was autoerotic. By the way, some things were being uh, described. And so, but when we got down there, it was all, there, there was no, no question it wasn't as far mm-hmm. as that went. But families do have a, now in the ME's office, we had several of those cases, whether they be in hotels, private rooms, things like that. Mm-hmm. And families do question that because, uh, you know, they, you know, they don't understand how that, you know, how that could be. And that's kind of a difficult situation to talk about with, you know, to be yeah. honest with you. Well, it is difficult, but, there, you know, here's another problem with that is well, the families don't want suicide, but they sure don't want this autoerotic. However, when it right. comes to life insurance, a life insurance of some uh, different policies, but some will pay out. They won't pay out on suicide, but they'll pay out on accident. So they double indemnity too. Yeah. So so yeah. if if it's if it's an an autoerotic death is generally an accidental death. Well, that's important for the families actually, even though they may not like the the stigma attached to it, and that may not be all that public necessarily. But we're but but that's why we want to make sure we get the answers correct because well you know a it could be in well it could be an insurance's favor or against the insurance or but the family's the one that needs the exact answers whether they like the answer or not you know they're, they're they need that answer but that's becoming very uh, i talked about this with a child death investigator not too long ago and it's becoming kind of popular but i really believe there's a lot of cases being missed because they, what we just talked about is that right. co- coroners and death investigators aren't recognizing it and they're ruling it suicide, even if they are recognizing it is what it is, they don't realize to put that indicator on there. And here's why it's important, I think, is that the more cases we get showing that, then nationwide we're going to be like uh, needing more education for that. Right now it's like, well, that's not a big deal. We only have ever how many. Really, you probably have five times that many. It's just not being reported correctly. Yeah. Right. And then the education is not out there, which means that deaths continue to climb. So that's, you know, that's why I think it's, it's an important deal. It, well, another question real quick uh, is, I only got a couple more. We talked a little bit about working with law enforcement, but what are some of the obstacles you guys have with prosecutors and law enforcement? And, and what do you do specifically to help get around those and foster a working relationship when you do have obstacles? You know, it's kind of, that's an interesting question. Uh, I, one example we had, we had a civil case, wrongful death case involving some drug use. And the prosecutor on the criminal side of that was willing to share everything with us uh, to help on the civil side. Later, we had a case involving a death involving the same prosecutor. We were on the defense side, nothing. We The, the coroner's office wouldn't share the information, uh, things like that. Now, under the protocol, that wasn't unusual because Everything goes through the discovery disclosure process, except in this case, there were not even any charges yet. They hadn't decided if charges would be filed. And there's a little loophole in Colorado law that gives us that time frame that we're supposed to have access to these public records. Because once charges are filed, they're not public anymore until there's a, a conclusion and adjudication of the case. So, again, everything we do is, is, is lawful. We fit within the confines of the law or 
or in some some cases there's no confines to the law. You know, like you said, Missouri, for example, is very open, and Colorado is very open. Uh, uh, there are some that aren't. We just simply have to, uh, then some of it gets to the old-fashioned legwork. We have to start conducting that investigation ourselves or have a colleague in that area uh, do some of these specific things that we need, such as witness interviews, and sort of redo that whole investigation over again. Thankfully, that's not very often because usually by the time we get the case, that investigator or that family or both have done a good job based on some instructions we've given them uh, on how to go about getting those records. Um We'll help provide this, you know, any of the FOIA, Freedom of Information Act statutes, you know, things like that to help out. Um, but sometimes you'll get the the question, um, they want to know what agency you're working with. And when you say you're a private investigator, they don't want to give you the credit unless you're working, you know, with a specific agency. Yeah, that's right there. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I want to hit on. Once, yeah. they, once you mention private investigator, you get shut down. Yep. Yeah. Because, because again, it goes back to the TV effect. Private right. investigators are a bunch of bumbling fools that gets in the way and yep. screws us up when we're trying to do our investigation. Now, that, isn't that what television shows? You yeah. bet, Darren. But, and, and you've been saying private investigator through the whole show, but I haven't corrected you. Uh, <laughs> I'll let you have that because it is a stigma, and, and I'm on the board of a national association which legislation affects us. Um, as private investigators and Colorado is going to be newly licensed. We're licensed in Wyoming or in Cheyenne, but we actually, I don't remember the last time we've personally identified ourselves as private investigators. We identify ourselves as legal investigators. Like I'm a certified legal investigator. We might be criminal defense investigators if we're working that case, but most often than specifically what we are talking about uh, when we're working with families and stuff, we'll, we'll call for example, the coroner and we'll say, you know, we're uh, medical legal death investigators working on this for the family. They under you understand that if I call you and tell you that. If I call you and tell you I'm a private investigator, you're going to think I'm an uninformed, bumbling fool that doesn't know what I'm talking about. Right. That's where the education comes in. Right. Right. Yes. So we do our best, and in fact, it's in that survivor's guide, and it's in our online course, and it's in my textbook for legal investigators that how you present yourself as a professional is immediately interpreted by the person interpreted by the person on the other end either by phone or in person and you may make a lot of headway by being appropriately addressed uh, using the appropriate um, you know vocabulary with them you know nobody wants to talk about um, I don't have a good example of a bad verbiage you know when you want scene photographs but you know you can mess things up by not not getting it right and that doesn't help the family Real quick, if I could touch on that just real quick, you mentioned insurance, and that's one of the things we we deal with families a lot because they are afraid that they may not be collecting. I mentioned the Sean Drent case. That was about insurance. In the end, that was about getting compensation because it was a workplace homicide, not a suicide. Double indemnity clauses. I mean, uh, the, the cause and manner of death can impact a family in a lot of ways beyond emotional. And we and sometimes the families misunderstand that we help them understand, or sometimes they're right. We help them try to continue down that correct road. Uh, so autoerotic deaths are one of those that can go both ways as far as how that turns out and what the family wants. But that reminded me when you mentioned education, and we're all about educating the public. Uh, the choking game with children. Uh, I, yeah, you, I mean we're all familiar with that. That have, we have not had a case, but we have read about them where they're. 
misdiagnosed at the scene and thankfully the forensic pathologist or at the autopsy or the complete scene investigation helps bring that forward. We had a case, speaking of autoerotic, just real quick. Uh, it wasn't our case, but while I was at the ME's office, a partner of mine, he was determined, he, he swore it was accident autoerotic. <clears throat> the forensic pathologist who we work with as our consulting still said, no, it's a suicide. And he tried to explain to him why. And it was a state, he said, this is a staged suicide. Um, and he had, he had literature and stuff like that for it, but I still don't know. It wasn't my case, but if it was staged, it was, it was very good. But, you know, so sometimes that makes a difference. So my other point of that is we don't make medical decisions. If we have any of those decisions or processes, we have our forensic pathologists and toxicologists. So I want our listeners to know, speaking of education, that it's important to have as much information possible as you can. And I know from our communications with you, Darren, and those others that are still in the field, because we're heavily involved with uh, deputy coroners and coroners, um, they're all about education, too. All of us are kind of really tired of this misinformation of media and TV and fictionalized events, but it's hard to get that education when some offices aren't willing to sit down or some of these records aren't public anymore, and you, you can't show and educate somebody. We used to have a, a party program, Prevent Alcohol-Related Trauma in Youth, when we were at the ME's office. And that's what all that was about, was education. We still will educate. Yeah, well, and that's, that's what... Uh that's what this podcast is about. That's what the website's yeah. about. It's about education and training uh, to people that can't necessarily get the training. We have a lot of coroners and death investigators in small areas that don't have the time or the money for training. And right. we, we bring this training to them. Uh, the website has a bunch of things, but also the podcast, of course, there's free training. Now, we have we have a lot of... Um, my wife does not like this term CSI voyeurs and I'm not I'm not trying to mean that yeah. as, as um derogatory I don't mean a derogatory we have a lot of people that is that is listens to the show that is interested in crime scene investigation now they're not crime scene specialists but they're interested in the field so we have a lot of those listening but 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 and that's fine this is educating them as as well um but I, I, two last questions here how do you get found What's the easiest way for, for you, know, you know, you're in Colorado, so how do lawyers or families, you're all across the nation, so how do, the, how do you get found? How, how do people know you exist? Thanks, Darren. We appreciate that. Uh, probably the best way, our website, um, we have several domain names, but www.deathcasereview.com. Uh, we have one, is it suicide? We have another, is it homicide? Uh, our phone number uh, in Colorado is 970-480-7793. And our email address to reach Karen and I both uh, is associates at deathcasereview.com. And that'll go to both of us. Um, and then whichever one of us can respond and help out, we're glad to. Uh, we're members of various associations. Uh, I'm a member of the National Association of Medical Examiners as an affiliate investigator. Uh, we're both members of the... Uh, uh, Criminal Defense Investigators Training Council, and, and several other state associations and stuff like that. So uh, what we encourage families to do is first speak. They're welcome to contact us directly or, or anything, but perhaps first speak with a local investigator and find out what, what they're able to do in their jurisdiction first. And then that investigator most often will contact us and let us know, hey, this is what we're able to do. Can you help us out from there? And then we'll we'll, we'll take it from there. And we're certainly welcome to answer any questions or help anybody the best we can. Right. So, so the last question here is, 
Uh, and th- what, what is the big takeaway from today's conversation? Uh, I won't use the word PI anymore. So legal, <laughs> legal, legal investigators, friend or foe. So what's the big takeaway of today? Legal investigators. Um, we're, we're, we are your friends, honestly. Um, legal investigators work with lawyers and attorneys. We, um, we don't deal with domestic cases. That's one of the big differences. We, we don't do the TV sleaze cheaters thing. But for us, uh, we're about educating our fellow investigators, uh, ethics, legal, legalities. We're about helping and educating attorneys, including prosecuting. We're about helping and working with law enforcement. They have a lot of access to education, so I kind of leave them out. I don't leave them out intentionally of education. They just have access to things that we can't uh, outside. But but we do. We're all we're willing to to be anywhere. And the other thing to take away is low cards. This is really about low cards principle. You know, ev- you know, entering a scene leaves evidence behind, takes evidence with you as a summary of it. Uh, and we do that when we're on the show, Darren. We learn from you several things. Uh, we hope our listeners learn from you and your other shows. And we hope that we're able to take away something from our listeners if they have questions. And, and we certainly hope we imparted something. Um, so the big takeaway for me personally is that educational component. We all are learning something. Somebody, one of my fellow forensic people um, in Florida, he one of his things today he said was, the day you quit learning is the day you start dying. That is exactly right. Um, I think personally that people need to understand that we don't have a dog in the fight no. and we're just neutral. We we're not really going for either way. We're just looking at the facts. That's it. We don't, we're not emotionally involved in it. And that's, I think a big problem with of thinking course the, we should be emotionally involved when we can't. You of know? course, the argument would be you, you do not have a dog in the fight, but the, the lawyer for the defense is writing you the check. Well, that's a different. That's I'm, t- I'm talking about for families. For the families, you know, however, but for defense, that's still but, you know we we still look at the facts. Yeah, yeah, the defense may be writing the check, and that's a very good point, by the way. Thank you. Uh, the defense is writing a check, however, they understand the limitations of, of that check writing, so to speak. Uh, we're only going to give them, and we're asked when I testify, you know, do you ever disagree with with your client's strategy? My first answer is I actually have no idea what our client strategy is mm-hmm. uh, until, I mean, I may not know until literally getting on the stand because that's not part of our dog in the fight. We, regardless of that check writing, which could be small to, to you know, a decent size, we just have to tell them the facts because here's the thing. Our integrity is at stake. The integrity of our profession is at stake. And there's a person out there that's fighting for their freedom as a defendant, and there's a person out there that's been victimized. We may or may not know who victimized or if there's any culpability, but we have to present that evidence. And, and here's another thing that people don't see on TV and stuff. We may tell our defense clients, you have a very, as I kind of mentioned earlier in the one, but you have a serious problem here that, you know, you got to look at this. This is a different issue. And, and sometimes that's just like, well, goodbye. Thank you, because you're not going to me with what I need. But I also wanted to point out that dog in the fight. Our listeners also need to understand that, you know, truly what we law enforcement, nor you know, coroners, deputy coroners, death investigators in the in the public agency side, there's no dog in that fight either. It's just cause and manner of death, circumstances of death, facts and evidence. Law enforcement wants to get the bad guy, they want to prosecute the bad guy. There's a dog in that fight, but it's still no different. They're still supposed to be following the same thing we do. 
So we're all out here together, you know, low cards principle to help each other, uh, share information, uh, no dogs in the fight, educate, train, be aware, you know, so I think it's very important. And that's one of the misnomers families have is they think, well, they only went in thinking it was a suicide. So they left thinking it was a suicide and they didn't collect the, the DNA from the underside of the spare tire in the car mm -hmm. that was in the garage. It, well, you know, so there we go again. <laughs> right. Right. And, and I'm glad you pointed that out, uh, you know, just about the police as well. They're the investigators. Absolutely. We should we should all go into it with no dogs. Because it's about finding the right answer. Now, we all have heard of those cases where, you know, we go in and say, yep, the husband did it. Now I'm going to spend six months to prove why the husband did it. That's bad. Okay. Yeah. So, um, you know, it isn't our job to prosecute anybody. It's our job to find the facts, give it, give the proper facts to the judges and the lawyers, to the prosecution. You're doing the exact same thing. And, and that was my point, the, the point about, uh, about who's writing the check. You answered that exactly the way I wanted to, is that, is that you guys are a professional integrity company. All you are doing is hired to find a, a set of facts to make sure that the police did the job that the defense wanted them to do type thing. So, no, I, I very much appreciate you answering that way, and that's, that was the, what I wanted to point out. So, um, well, we've come to our hour here, guys. Thank you very much for being on the show. Um, any, uh, we've, all the contact information that you gave me is going to be in the show notes. So for you listening, you can find that, of course, at cornertalk.com, and it'll be right there on the homepage. And so it's... Uh, to go over there, look at their contact information. There's more information about, about Dean and Karen both. And, uh, you know, use them if you can. Call and ask questions. If you don't want any more training, again, they've got some printed material. They've got some textbook material, things you can, you can purchase from them, take a distance learning course, all kinds of things that I'm sure they're willing to provide and help you with. So until next time, I invite you to take your investigations to a new level. Share this podcast with somebody. Find us in iTunes and Stitcher. Leave us a review. It helps us so much to get found and to train others. Until next week, everybody, be safe. Thanks for listening to Coroner Talk, a DSPN media production. Visit our website at coronertalk.com and be sure to like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash coroner training. 3617-1024 scene on route to morgue.